Hi, I'm Chris Whiteout. Welcome to Living It, the podcast where we join experts in the experience of being human. Be bold. Say yes to adventure. Say yes to living it. Hello, this is Chris Whiteout. Welcome to Living It. And today I am super excited. I'm with Kate Milliken. Kate and I met back in 2008. I had just done my scouting trip on Mount Kilimanjaro and I was in New York and a buddy of ours, a mutual friend, John Lawrence said, you need to meet Kate. And when John tells me I need to meet someone, it really is important that I meet that person. And so we had brunch like at Robert De Niro's place in Tribeca and, 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 and just hung out and had become friends. And you had gone through, so 2006 is, is when you got your diagnosis, your MS diagnosis. We we're going to talk about how she attacked her diagnosis. And in 2007, you had, you had a checkup that was really kind of a, an unbelievable checkup. So I met you in 2008. Something you don't know, you got your diagnosis right around the uh, December 20th, 21st, 22nd, right? My accident was December 20th, where I broke my back. Wow. Which in some ways is like a, a new birthday, isn't it? It's, it's kind of like you go to the doctor and you know you've got to write down your birthday, but you know you also have to write down that day because it's a significant day in some ways. And, and so, so we are, we're like second birthday Sagittariuses, I guess. <laughs> I love that, that we both kind of started a different trajectory around the same time and that you and I have stayed friends all the way through that. Um, and checked in with each other kind of throughout our respective journeys. So I didn't know that, and I think that's awesome. Well, I learned that in our research, and in some ways it's kind of like the Mark Twain quote where he said the two most significant days in your life are the day you're born and the day you realize why. And in some ways that second birthday for us has become our reason why. And so- Yes, and I think, yeah, go ahead. Uh, anyway, so can you take me back to, so you, you got the diagnosis that, that, you, had, that you had MS, which is, which is one of those that you don't even really know what's going on, right? So, so one, can you tell me where you were in your life when you got that diagnosis and then what it meant to you? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, at the time when I was diagnosed, I was 35 and I was living in New York City, right square in the middle of Manhattan. I was an independent video producer and I was doing a lot of freelance gigs and I was really living my life kind of to the fullest in the sense of, of really being a pusher. So you know, a typical day at the time where I started getting sick was, you know, waking up, biking 40 miles before breakfast in Central Park, taking a shower, getting together with a crew, um, going to interview people. Sometimes we would have to interview four or five different clients in a day around Manhattan. So we would pack our gear, go to a location, take all the gear upstairs, set up, run an interview, break down, put it back in a cab and go to the next location. Um, which is a lot of a lot of effort, and then I would come back home and I would take a shower, and I would go out on a date or go meet with friends and drink, you know, half a bottle of wine and do it six days in a row. So, in some ways, it was a very exciting time because I was running on all cylinders, 
And, um, and I think that that's in some ways what made that moment of diagnosis uh, such a surreal moment because everything was moving forward. And then, um, you know, waking up one day and realizing that, you know, I had tingling in my hands and that I had crushing fatigue. Um, but, you know, were, were things that I thought were unusual. And then um, the way that my MS manifested was that I ended up having a whole delay on my left side. So even though my brain was telling my body to, you know, walk, um, I could just tell something was off. And so by the time I got my MS diagnosis, I couldn't even keep my balance. And I think when you talk about that day, I mean, for you in the moment of having your birthday, you know, the accident happened in seconds for you. Right. And for me, I had kind of, um, you know, a three-day trajectory where um, I knew something was off and then I was hitting Google and I was saying to my parents, oh my God, what if I have MS? So you actually thought that, you thought that it could have been MS beforehand because there's a part of, I mean, you're driving yourself so hard. Right. That, that you're like, okay, well, you're just, you're being crazy. You're driving yourself too hard. You're, this is your body telling you, hey, let's take a break. Let's just sleep. But you thought right. it could have been MS. Well, I started realizing, I think that first of all, if anyone who is listening deals with any type of chronic fatigue or immune kind of, you know, kickstarted fatigue, you know, it's really unusual to go to bed at eight o'clock, wake up at eight o'clock the next morning um, and not feel sick. So I knew that was really weird. Um, and then, you know, this tingling was so unsettling. There's something in MS called um, Lermet syndrome where you put your head down and you get this shock down your spinal cord. And uh, I was having that. So I was typing things into Google um, and it was coming up. I still didn't understand what MS was. In fact, I thought I was getting the same diagnosis as Michael J. Fox, who most people know has Parkinson's. It just at the time, MS wasn't as mainstream as it is now. It was pretty... Um, unusual, but my kind of birthday happened in kind of this three-day block, of, and I was alone. I think it's important to say I was a 35 woman who was a 35 year old who was single in Manhattan, and one could certainly argue being single um, in Manhattan at age 35 is almost as bad, if not worse, than an MS diagnosis. That's a whole <laughs> other conversation. I think we'll get to that conversation. We can, we can. And um, anyway, so, you know, this moment, I will never forget this flashbulb moment. And again, I'm sure you can relate to that too, where I went to the, I got an MRI and I remember being by myself um, and the phone rang and I picked it up and the doctor said, your MRI has come back and you have an enormous lesion on your C4 vertebrae. Um, I know it's MS. And in light of where it is and the size of it, you could be paralyzed. Go to a hospital. I've got a bed waiting for you. Don't even pack. And I think the, that moment, go. I mean, it was just like, it was, so, it was so dramatic and so sudden and so lonely. And I'll just kick in. It was December 22nd. And if anyone's been in New York City around Christmas time, I mean, it's festive and, you know, everyone's running around with their children and you know, getting into a taxi to get myself to the hospital um, was pretty surreal. And actually, as a video producer and a personal documentarian, I remember hanging up the phone and literally six inches away from me was a video camera. And I had that dialogue of like, 
should I be taking this with me and starting to roll tape right now? And um, in that moment of fear, I couldn't do it. In that moment, I couldn't do it. So that's how it all kind of began. Because you also, by virtue of what you did professionally, you saw your life in scenes in some ways too, right? Where this is a scene, that is a scene. Okay, you're starting to build the story, even though it's your own story, which is a which is a strange thing. So, so that's, that's a crushing moment. I mean, that is a moment where, and C4, C4 effectively means that's, that's your, that's your neck. That means that, that you'll have limited hand function, that you'll have limited arm function. That is a, that is a power chair that is potentially sip and puff where, where you might have to use your mouth to be able to direct a wheelchair. And so this is going from six laps in the morning of Central Park to how do I get around my apartment? The severity and the drasticness of which this guy was like, get to the hospital, don't even pack, was crazy. And in some ways, I think when you know something's wrong and you get a diagnosis, you know, you'll often hear people say it was a terrible diagnosis, but in some way it was a relief. And I think that, you know, I hadn't gotten far enough in my Google research to realize that I would be, you know, potentially puffing. Um, it's interesting from your perspective of what a C4 vertebrae means, but I knew it was serious and I knew something was very, very wrong. And, um, but, you know, in that time, I think no matter where you are in an adversity, there is such a moment of loneliness that comes with that because if for me personally, no one was in my apartment, right? So I was having to like find a cab on the street and trying to process that shock um, on your own, you know, feels terrible. And in the days that followed, so I went to the hospital and I got a huge dose of steroids, which reduced the inflammation. And I went down to Florida to be with my parents. And, you know, my father would always crack jokes. I have a twin brother and he was off with his family. He had a nuclear family. So it was the year that he was with his in-laws. And my dad would always joke, you know, at the ripe old age of 35 on Christmas morning, like, did Santa come? You know, it was like a total (laughs) humiliation hanging out with my parents at the age of 35 on Christmas, you know? And um, we were in a beautiful place in Florida. And it was just one of those things where everything around me was so pretty. And I was left literally on my own trying to find a foothold of of understanding what what was going on and what this meant and whatever else. And that's a really scary time, I think, in the journey. Well, it's a scary time. And you talk about the loneliness, which is interesting, because anybody who would have met you would have said, there's no way that Kate is lonely. I mean, she she's with people all the time. She's She's out on dates. She is this vibrant, you know, just, uh, just, attractive, intelligent. I mean, like, like, why could it ever possibly be a worry for Kate that she might not have a partner that she seems like she's not like she's failing in New York City. But yet, your perspective was entirely different than what other people were thinking. How how do you how do you reconcile the two? Because people be like, Kate, you're crazy. You've got it all. What do you mean? How could you possibly be lonely? Right? Well, first, I would say, I think that when people hear bad news about somebody, somebody's father suddenly died, somebody lost a child, somebody has cancer, somebody had a uh, an accident that put them in the wheelchair, whatever, 
in that moment as a friend, it's amazing to watch how people react because you may have a world of people who love you, but in that actual time, having the courage to try to respond directly, um, try to reach out, um, I don't think it happens amongst, you know, let's say you have a thousand friends. I would say that there are less than a hundred that have the strength to pick up a telephone and say, oh my God, I heard the news. I, I, I'm so sorry. I don't really know what to say. And I do remember thinking to myself, because you're right, I'm really lucky to have an amazing support network and a great social life. But in that time, I think you're looking for, A, people that can directly face it, can you know, be in touch with you directly to say, I'm really sorry. Um, and then you're also looking for people that understand and who have been through it or who are going through it. So I think people always say, you know, you don't really understand it unless you're dealing with it. But I think there are two separate things there. So I will always remember the pe my friends who had the courage to pick up the phone to say that they were thinking of me or I'm so sorry and, you know, is there anything I can do and, and whatever else. It, it's interesting that you say that. We lost my mother a couple of Christmases ago, just, just uh, really suddenly. I mean, no, no expectation whatsoever. Uh, and, and my father posted something on Facebook about that people will, will avoid talking about it. And, 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 you know, because they don't want, they don't want to stir up any bad memories. They don't want to make it emotional for the, you, they don't want to make it difficult for you. And he said, well, that's, that's what you miss. Is it and really I, about you? I mean, that's the irony, right? It, it's about them. It really is. And people just don't know. And, and the thing is, none of us know. I mean, it's a, <clears throat> it's one of our biggest challenges is trying to figure out how we can start that conversation and how we can, can, can be vulnerable enough to be able to say, she was an amazing person. She did this for me. And he's like, those memories are the things that are so important. That personal connection continues to be the thing that's so important. But yet if this barrier, if a sudden loss, if a diagnosis becomes that barrier between you and people, then you've lost the people. And this is the isolation and the loneliness that you're talking about. And you had to pursue your recovery on your own because, because I mean, MS in a lot of ways is, well, you know, go prepare to die. Like this is, it's going to get worse. And, and what did you, but what did you do? How did, how did things work for you? Because it worked a little differently than it worked for a lot of people. Well, I, I will say that, you know, it becomes a blessing and a curse that with MS, so for those that don't know, MS is an inflammation of the central nervous system and your body gets confused for whatever reason and it actually attacks your own myelin sheath um, your, with, that you can find in your brain and your spinal cord. So if you um, equate your spinal cord to a garden hose and your brain wants to send an impulse to snap your fingers, if there are holes in the garden hose, um, then you're going to lose the ability to have function. Um, and it can have a cognitive effect as well. What you learn immediately with MS is that it's wildly individual. So you don't know what's going to happen to you. And when you start the MS journey, there is nothing worse than hearing that. And what's interesting is that because you're encased in fear, um, I think most people's brain goes to a half empty perspective. I don't know what's going to happen. I, I, I could be in a wheelchair. It could lead to, you know, more serious progression and ultimately, you know, have ramifications that lead to death. But it's interesting that you could also say it could do that or not. 
right? There's just as much chance as half full as half empty from the get-go. And it's, uh, I think at the time in 2007, um, you know, they had made great progress in terms of treatments in the MS space. Um, I don't quote me, but there were probably eight or nine therapies um, that were out in 2007. Now there are like over 20. So it's a neurological condition that actually is making enormous progress in terms of conventional therapy, um, which, is, which is fabulous. And it's giving hope that people who come out of the gate with a relaxing, remitting form of MS, which is the most mild case, can lead a manageable life. For me, I ended up knowing that my motor function got back um, and uh, I appeared fairly normal, but I felt terrible inside. It's hard to explain how sick I felt. And when I ended up going to a doctor, you know, a specialist, one of the best specialists in the world and saying, how are you gonna make me feel better? They would say, we can't help you. Like if you're holding a glass, and you drop the glass, we can help you. But if not, that's just the nature of MS. And I think that there's a point where you have to, when somebody gives you a statement of finality, like, what do you do with that? There's a big question, right? And, and, and it, it's so personal. It's funny, as you were saying that, it's, it's not a great example, but I couldn't help but think of Jim Carrey from Dumb and Dumber, where he's like, so you mean there's a chance? You know, and right. it's like, yeah, one in a million. There's a chance, and obviously your 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 odds were much better than that. But I think that that's it, it gets to where you have to define it yourself. It's undefinable because because in so many ways, it's it everybody everybody's road is different, and they can't make you feel better. So then the responsibility falls in your lap. And obviously, there were some treatments. Yes. But I went on treatment immediately and I was still feeling terribly, you know, and, and it is true. No one cares about you as much as you do. Like it's your problem ultimately um, in terms of how you, how you deal with it. And I think that, you know, I was super lucky, you know, as you said, I'm, I feel like I know a lot of people and um, as this kind of MS thing unfolded, more and more people found ways to be in touch and be courageous and somebody put me in touch um, and coordinated a meeting with a wonderful guy named Dr. Mark Hyman, who actually has gotten a lot of attention recently, and he's a functional medicine doctor. And we had a cocktail, and um, he said, have you had your heavy metals checked? And I said, no. And he said, um, it, it would be worth you doing that. So he kind of led me into this world of functional medicine, which in 2007 was pretty, still considered kind of out there. And I, I ended up finding an incredible osteopath named George Kessler, who's located in New York City. And he, when we had our first appointment, he said, you know, I don't really care that you have MS. Why do you have it? It's an inflammation of the central nervous system. What might be inflaming you? And he did a ton of stool tests and blood tests and had my heavy metals checked. And we found out that I had extremely high levels of mercury in my system. Um, I had nine mercury fillings and I ground my teeth a lot. And I thought that was the cause. And I had bad bacteria in my gut. So when he said, he said, look, here's what's going to happen. You're going to get these mercury fillings removed with a holistic dentist. So you'll hear if you even go down this rabbit hole about getting rid of your fillings, some will tell you that when you start moving mercury in your mouth, it's more dangerous. And there are dentists out there who recognize that and work really carefully to remove it. So I had nine fillings. I had five appointments. Each one were, you know, two and a half hours 
there were three people around me getting the fillings removed, the dentist, the nurse with the strong suction, and this wonderful nurse who was doing reflexology on me because I had to keep my mouth open for two hours at a time. Um, and it was super intense. Can you describe what reflex reflexology is? Please. Yeah. So it's, yes, it's, it's hitting pressure points. And in this case, in your hands um, that help release tension in other parts of your body. And um, at the same time, I had an osteopath who was carefully giving me chlorophyll. So as they were removing the mercury, it was chelating from the inside. So that was one thing I did. And then the other thing I did is this guy put me on a supplemental regimen um, and, you know, taking nutrients. And I don't want to get too micro, but I'll just give you one example of this whole idea of having bad bacteria in your gut, which is a, what a third now calling a microbiome issue. And the whole concept of it is that your body just doesn't process things normally. So I will tell you that the moment I got diagnosed with MS, um, I started taking um, vitamin D. In fact, I took a 200% of the daily allotment because I'd read vitamin D was really good for you and you can't overdose on it. And I took it every single day. And when this osteopath um, got my blood results back, I had 10% of the vitamin D I needed. I said, what are you talking about? I've been taking it every day for six months. And he said, your body's just flushing it through. So that was number two. And what he said to me exactly was, I'm going to wipe out the bad bacteria in your gut, re-inoculate the good bacteria, rebalance your system, and ideally you will heal yourself. And then he said, Kate, I have been in med school and I know they teach you, you cannot reverse myelin damage, but I've seen it happen in my practice and I would plan on it. I would plan on it. Wow. And that for me as a type A doer who was just dying for a sense of proactivity and control, took that so seriously. And, um, you know, I put a post-it on my mirror and I had two words, which became my mantra, reverse it. And I became so convinced um, that if I you know, took my conventional therapy and, and took this supplemental regimen, which in fairness was out of network, super extensive and super expensive, um, that I could reverse my own lesion. And I thought about that, you know, a thousand times a day. And what was interesting about it was, you know, in that time of kind of accepting the fact that everyone around me in New York was going somewhere and their life was great. And I, from that moment of diagnosis, especially being in Florida, I was like, I'm going to be the girl that people at cocktail parties are like, oh my God, Kate Milliken, like she had so much potential, dot, dot, dot. You know what I mean? Like it's over. And, um, and that was a really big deal, you know, in terms of feeling like that was, the, that was like the rock bottom fear. And this gave me something to hang on to. So just the rest of the story is that um, I was so convinced I was going to reverse my lesion on my MRI that I brought a camera crew to Mount Sinai where I was being treated. Um, and the doctors thought I was crazy. And they pulled out the MRI and there was nothing there. And the lesion reversed itself. And now here we are 12 years later. I'm so happy to report they are now showing there's a correlation between the microbiome and MS and other immune issues and that you can regenerate myelin. So that's like 12 years ahead of the curve. Look at you, trailblazer. That's awesome. And 
thank you for all the people following behind you. It's interesting. So you had you had the post it and you had you had the out thing as well, right? So out and and reverse it were your two mantras in a lot of ways of like, okay, this is the way I'm going to do it. And we as we as human beings really want to be sort of fundamentalist on some way, right? Like we we crave this sense of like black and white. And it's like, okay, good, bad, make my life simple, right? And and life for the most part is is pretty much in the grays. You knew what the enemy was. The enemy was the disease. Mm-hmm. And you had you had an action. You had you had things that you could do. But the question is, why were you doing it? What were you doing it for? So, so I actually think that's an amazing question because I think if you break free of the actual disease activity itself, you know, I think that process of um, really trying to, you know, stop your negative thinking in its tracks, you know, accept where you are and start to rebuild takes this whole story out of the specific of MS and more into a human journey. I mean, I think that, you know, the greatest lesson, I think for me, as somebody who everything was pushing and moving forward and fast and hard and and I think that, that that bigger thing of having to stop dead in your tracks and having to accept that, you know, when my best friend called to tell me that he was having a second baby, right, of being like, oh, my God, you know. And I remember giving tons of congratulations, hanging up the phone, bursting into tears, and then out loud saying over and over, like, believe, 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 believe. You know, and, and so I think that the, the greater thing was really beginning to um, just become much more self-aware and really uh, just tapping into like a different energy and flow of, of being human and being present and being good to yourself and gentle to yourself. And I feel like this gave me an incredible foundation to um, kind of really... Uh, Stop being all about me. Well, stop be all being about you, but but also being all about you, right? In some ways, right. it's almost like because you're you're ultimately re- re- realizing that you are responsible for this yes. vessel. That's right. It's like a you're right. It's like both one is being about me, about you know just moving forward, and one is more about um, being aware of being all about me. Right. Because you'd lived the life that in a lot of ways we were, we're taught to live. Like you live off of adrenaline, you push, you go, you make it happen and you're using, you achieve and you're using, you're using this vessel that you have. And in a lot of ways, completely abusing it without any regard for who we are. And, and is it easy to continue to remember now that things are are better you've reduced the lesions you're Mm -hmm. not in that critical moment where every single thought every single thing that you put into your body is important right you remember now can you can how how do you keep that conviction now look i think there is something um so powerful about gratitude which is something i think has become very mainstream in a wonderful way Um, I think that you, I mean, for me personally, part of my healing ended up becoming um, meeting other people living with MS and gaining perspective from them. So I think that one way that I, I never 
forget where I'm at today, um, is being around other people who are living the same problem and watching how they are trying to get better themselves. So, you know, I've been in remission for a long time. I certainly have moments where I can feel it, um, kind of, uh, you know, whether it's tingling or fatigue, it will kind of come up and down, but ultimately whether it's true or not, I do feel like I have a sense of control on it. And, um, so I would say my answer is really looking at other people and, you know, deciding that part of, you know, in, in that healing time, um, that first year, one of the things I was able to find, I found somebody who I could emotionally relate to, um, who had done really well with MS. She was a really cool woman named Tyler. Um, she was my age, she had gotten married. And that was, I would say, maybe the fourth element of my healing is being consoled by someone who got it, who had an incredible attitude. So I surround myself with people who have this problem and I constantly am in conversation about how to come to terms with where you're at. And I would say that is the answer of how I stay where I am today. So part of it is, part of it is teaching, right? It's like you're held to a higher, higher level of responsibility as a result of being a teacher, but you're, your path is not necessarily the path for other people, right? Some woman right. said to you, don't tell me to put post-it notes on my mirror. H how, do you, how do you help them through, or, or how do you help each other through, through a journey, which is a different journey? I think that, look, with, with MS comes disability and comes limitations that arguably are finite. And I don't have any of them today. So I cannot directly uh, relate to that, but I think that there are ways of having people get off the simple fact of what they don't have and finding ways to expand their thinking um, in terms of what they can do or how they can work around it. So, I mean, you are a tremendous example of this, Chris, that you could have just chosen to have a hard stop in your thinking and be at a dead end. And I watch people reframe. So I've watched people, you know, um, if I'm online with people and we're chatting or, um, you know, I've been involved with some online communities that, you know, I'll have, I've, I've literally watched someone who, who started, you know, conversing with me and many other people who was just really angry. And over time, I saw a post where this person said, you know, I'm so mad that my hand doesn't work but at least my feet do. And that moment of adding that second part of the sentence changed the, the trajectory of his healing completely. It, it, is, it is about being healthy in some ways, I think, right? I mean, that's, I, I look back on it. And so, so as I said, my accident happened December 20th. And it was, in a lot of ways, it was the greatest time of my life after my accident, which sounds... Tell me why. I will. It, it sounds idiotic in a lot of ways, right? And people look at me and go, wow. And it was the greatest time because it was the most powerful I've ever been. It was the most me that I've ever been. I think that we all look and, and think that we see, we see that potential. You hit on this. Oh, Kate Milliken, she had so much potential. Right. And that's human though. I mean, we all feel that way that you're, it's like, you know, the pat on the back as a little kid, like, oh, you're amazing. You have so much potential. And that's this warm feeling. But after, after my accident, 
I couldn't indulge in any of the things that that sort of took me away from from who I was in my most powerful form. You know, so mm. so so the frustration. You know, if I if I'm frustrated, it draws me away from who I am. It draws me out of that moment of staying in that moment. The optimism, continuing to believe. It's something that I call I call realizing possible. Uh-huh. And, and possible is like we have we have our big goals, right? I mean, we all have, this is my goal, but realizing possible is realizing it in that moment because we, we set our goals when things are all cool. You know, you're sitting on your couch, right. you're at your desk, you're like, oh yeah, like that'd be, a mo- that'd be awesome, that'd be great. But then something goes wrong and it's even just, it's even just like I, I competed as an athlete for a long time and you wake up in the morning and it's raining and you go, all right, I don't really want to go right now. Yeah. Or, right. or is this the realizing possible? This is the building who I am. It's a building, an incremental building of who I am as an individual and building that positive momentum that, that takes me so much further away because like you, it was frightening to see the diagnosis and the potential and to think that could be my life. Like my life could be over at 20 years old. Right. And that the over is something that you inflict. So I'll tell you from my personal experience is I have been around people and I have watched them progress with MS to the point they need an assistive device, whether it's a cane or a walker or a wheelchair. And I have watched their emotional response to that fact, being angry, sad, scared, overwhelmed, you know, arguably kind of negative feelings and being so mad. And then I watched them make the choice to get the assistive device. And after they get it, then they start um, talking about themselves in a way of being hopeful, determined, happy, um, because they have their freedom back. I mean, these are people that were wildly dependent on other people who were exhausted. And somehow this you know, everybody says the first comment with MS, oh my God, am I going to be in a wheelchair? Right? That's like the worst fear. Right. Um, and, uh, and when you actually watch people who find themselves tipping over that cliff, going to that place, um, watching what happens when they actually get there is incredible. And that's, and I want to talk about your film now because, because that's, that's the hopeful part. It's the part that we actually share. So you were talking about being in New York and doing everything and riding your bike and, and go, 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 go and going on dates, but being lonely yeah, as well, which you think, wow, she's killing it. She's doing everything, but you don't have that hopeful spark as much there, where then you're talking about contrasting it, people who are getting an assistive device, whose lives are going down to a certain extent, but then are actually hopeful and, right. and in watching your film uh, beneath the surface, it was really, it really is that human journey, right? It really is that sense of, of being hopeful. It was funny. The, uh, the doctor at one point said, uh, said when, when, ret- when, uh, when retreat happens, the brain suffers. Yeah. And, right. And in a lot of ways, that's, that, that is kind of what happens as we get older as well, right? That we, that we don't start trying something new, that we do what we do 
and we don't do something new. We're not stretching ourselves in this sense of, right. of hopefulness. I mean, it, I assume that your intention with the film was to make that personal connection to, this isn't about me, it's about right. you. Right. So um, last fall, we were lucky enough to get some funding from Novartis, me and a production company called The Nantucket Project, to produce a 30-minute film about people living with MS. And the whole idea came out of the fact that I have been through being online with um, people living with MS in an online community. I've just met these extraordinary people. And when I actually look at the people I know, um, specifically the majority of them who I've known for over five years, um, most of them are getting worse. I'm literally watching them have more symptoms and more progression. Um, and this ranges from somebody who has um, serious cognitive challenges to somebody who has become a quadriplegic to somebody who needs a feeding tube and can't get out of bed. And one of the things that I became hyper aware of getting to know these people is um, their resilience and, and in the face of the reality of what they were dealing with was incredible. So they had this ability just to own it, not to sugarcoat it, not to hide it, but just to almost use it as a lens of which to kind of move to their next chapter. And the, the thing I love about this film, um, so it's a, a montage, you know, it's kind of you meet 10 different characters, you know, ranging from me to someone who's been diagnosed for a week and a half to these people I'm telling you about, to Montel Williams, who's in this film, um, talking about MS. And what I love is that these people aren't, you know, the Nantucket Project did a wonderful job really documenting these people as they are. So for example, there's a, there's a great woman named Diana Fristacci who's in the film. She's a young mother. She's super funny. Um, but these cognitive challenges are a really big deal. And her exact words were, you know, I used to be Comedy Central and now I'm Sesame Street. She knows her brain is different. Um, and she has problems with thinking of words. And there's one moment where she's in the car and she's trying to say I was in an MRI and, and she says something to the effect of, and I had these round things around my ears that they... They stop the sound and they are circles and, you know, and the producer was able to say, or the director, you know, headphones, earphones. Yeah, that's it. And catching that type of thing on camera is something I think people shy away from. But I think the mistake is like, I don't think people give um, others who are debilitated in whatever way enough credit for knowing the truth and seeing the truth and seeing why it's hard. Um, and they assume that that's gonna spiral people into a vortex of depression. And what I think that film has done is it's had the opposite effect because I don't leave it feeling sorry for anybody. Well, that's an interesting question because, because I think that, that we're up against three different things, aren't we? Like first we're up against how people see us. Yep. So, so as somebody with MS, you're on the outside looking in to a certain extent. Uh, then it's how we see ourselves. Then it's how we think other people see us. Right. And right. sometimes we don't give them enough credit, but, but telling those stories and finding a way, I mean, like looking at the drummer and he's saying, you know, 
I play a little bit differently now, but you know, it's a little, it's a little groovier and, and I think it's actually better. Yeah. You go, well, all right. Like that's, I mean, that's, that's what we hope. Like we as human beings have this amazing ability to adapt. If we allow ourselves, if we put ourselves in the position to adapt, what's been the response to the, to the film? Um, so I feel like the response has been wonderful and, and it will be more formally launched in the next couple months. Um, but for those that are watching, you can find it on beneath the surface film.com. Um, I think uh, I got a slew, I kind of launched it into my community and I got a slew of thank yous. Thank you for showing what MS really is. Thank you for, you know, not being afraid to put it out there. I was so impressed by, you know, these people who, you know, find new ways to kind of move on or whatever else. And um, so I would say it's been really positive. It's beautifully shot, um, which I really love. So I think people, you know, even if they're in a sort of compromised situation, um, still look like rock stars and, uh, and they are in, the, in their own way. Um, so I think it's been really, really positive and it, and it just warrants this discussion of throwing it in your face. And, you know, one thing with MS is some people have visible symptoms and some people have invisible symptoms, you know, and which is worse. And a couple months ago, I interviewed somebody named Alana Duffy, who was a veteran, totally unrelated, but I, um, I interviewed her. She had a terrible traumatic brain injury, um, while serving. And for years and years, she suffered. And as a last, as a after effect of the TBI, she had to have a leg amputated. And she said, Kate, you cannot believe how interesting it's been for me to walk into a rehab center and see the difference of how I'm treated with a TBI versus missing a leg. It is, it is amazing, right? And that's a big part of the, of the film is about telling your story, right? Yeah. And so, so like with Montel and with the, with the engineer where you're telling, why, why do you need to tell your story? What's so important about this? Cause obviously with the film, you had to tell your story as well. Yeah. Look, I think that um, personal storytelling is where it's at because it, it takes everybody to the same place, which is being human. And I think that um, people generally appreciate a great story um, stories are hard when you hear about people suffering, but that, that suffering can be incredible primer um, to a great story if someone comes around to the other side, right? So I, what I'm most proud about about that film is getting to share these story arcs. And I'll just give you one more, which is a, a guy named Sergio Rodriguez, who's out of Arizona. Um, and when he was diagnosed, it was very serious. He got um, Bell's palsy and um, he was pretty debilitated and he was supposed to be married. And he had to go to a rehab facility. And when he came back, the fiance had moved out. And at this point, he was pretty overweight. He weighed like, I don't 280 pounds. I mean, he was obese. And he came back and spiraled into a depression. And he realized that the day of his supposed wedding, which wasn't happening anymore, was the day of the walk for MS. And he showed up for the MS walk and it kickstarted a regimen of him getting in shape. Um, he now runs marathons. He looks fantastic. He ended up going to work for the MS Society and he just got married last year to somebody who loved him for who he is. So that to me is a great story. It's so terrible what happened to him in the beginning. 
um, but how far he came. And that's one thing I think with storytelling is you may not know somebody, but storytelling allows you to know how far they've come. And that's strong. Right. And hopefully to be able to put your, put yourself in the position of that person. Right. I mean, that's the, that's the hope for, for every piece of art is to become, become the protagonist in looking at some of these people and looking at the film. Sometimes you look at it and you go, well, these are like, these are superheroes. Like, like these are, these are the people who, who are, who are just doing it. Like, what do I have to learn from the superheroes? How, how are you able to, to explain that side of it? The, you know, can, can they relate to the superheroes? Um, I think they can totally relate to the superheroes. So the reason why I met all these people is after living kind of my, my issue of loneliness, I decided to create my own online community um, in a venture called My Counterpain. And My Counterpain allowed people to kind of lay out their story in moments. We built this storytelling tool, um, which we called the Moodifier, or you got to Moodify. And what that means is when you posted a story, I mean a moment, um, you'd have to pick one of 13 emotions and a date and why you felt that way. And what came out of it was you literally saw a visual graph of an emotional journey and you broke people's story into these searchable moments of content. So on my counterpane, you had the ability to say, um, you know, I I'm 35, I'm looking for somebody who's 35 in New York with relapsed intermittent MS, who's on Copaxone, who's scared. And with these incredible search criteria, what would come up were exact moments that related. And one of the things I know is all you need is one moment from somebody's story to connect that gives you um, this incredible automatic healing power. And so what I loved about this platform, um, which has since been put on ice, um, was that it allowed people to see the, the constant emotional ups and downs. So you might view these people as superheroes, but if you went back into kind of um, you know, their profiles. Um, I'm on an island that is a noon bell. Don't get nervous. Um, just to be clear, we're watching Lost as a family right now. And we've all started thinking about this island as having some weird powers. Anyway, um, but you can see that everybody has infallible moments. Everybody. And, um, and uh, I'm uh, fallible moments that are really hard. And I think that Actually, it's like as a result of seeing that they're human, as a result of seeing their weakness and vulnerability, that's what makes them the superhero. So personal storytelling, if it's done well, allows you to really understand the tough parts, which actually play ultimately a lot more poignantly than just, um, you know, glossing it over. Which we as human beings have a desire to gloss it over, right? Sometimes we do, yes. Unless you're really feeling horrible, you probably want to find someone who's been there, right? I think that's exactly it because, the, you know, I mean, I do it all the time, you know, where, where people ask me, oh, life in a wheelchair must be so difficult. And I'm like, no, no, it's fine. It's no big deal, right? Huh. And, right. And, 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 and for the most part, it really is. But, but this is, I think what you're talking about, for me, it's always this sense of honesty. Like the more honest you can be, the more general you ultimately are. Well, I think that I made a choice early on that I was going to be completely honest about my MS. And so, for example, I'd go out on a date and on the second date, I might bring it up. And 
my immediate response was, you know, I have MS. And then I would say, do you know what MS is? And it would, it would engage a conversation. And I think that I watch a lot of people hide their diagnosis and not want to talk about it. And I think that if you have the power to own what your issue is in a way that you've, you know, been thoughtful about it and you can be strong presenting it, it actually flips the table. So for example, with your comment of, yeah, it's actually okay. You know, that leaves people actually feeling like it's on them now. Like you're fine with it. And, and, and I think that's incredibly powerful. It's, I mean, when you, when you talk about that, it's a really, it's a really interesting part, isn't it? The, just the, the sense of how we work with other people, how we look at them, how they, how they look at us. And, mm -hmm. and I mean, even, even putting it out there, I think that sometimes it's so easy for the thing in our head yeah. to be the most debilitating thing, the thing that we're hiding in our head. Right. And I, I do a lot of these school presentations and I often say in our school presentations to kids, we think that that's what makes us different, that makes us separate from other people is like this thing that I'm hiding, but it's actually, it's human. Everybody, everybody has that thought of like, oh, if anybody knew this about us, about me, right. I'd be on the outside looking in. But it's also the most powerful. Right. So in, in your experience, because my understanding of, you know, with your, with your moment of change that you came out of the gate um, pretty confident and pretty, I wouldn't say matter of fact, but recognizing kind of a, a, um, a choice to kind of throw it out there from the start. Is there anything you feel like you hid in the beginning that took you a while to expose? Anything that I hid? Yes, most definitely. Because action was easy. Action was easy mm -hmm. for me. So, so I, I had to do the physical stuff. I had to figure out, I mean, you know, you break your back, you, you, it's not just about getting around. It's, it's like all of the attendant things, you know, the, the, uh, you know, the, the bowel and bladder and all that stuff and everything, which is, which is way more difficult to figure out than, Hey, get in a wheelchair and use your arms instead of using your legs. So, yeah. so, so certainly, and, and that's the stuff that, you know, you don't necessarily want to talk about either. Yeah. But so the action part, I was in the hospital for two months. I said, I am going back to school. I went to Middlebury College, which is at that point was an almost 200 year old school built mostly out of granite on the top of a hill in Northern Vermont in the middle of February. <laughs> and it's like, that's where I want to go. And it's like, slippery really? much. Yeah. <laughs> yeah exactly. Like what uh, are you thinking that that is completely idiotic, but uh, it was where my community was. It was where my friends were. It was where my life was. My life was not in the hospital. I didn't share much with the people who were in the hospital with me, uh, yeah. you know, short of like the doctors and, and therapists. And I, I gravitated toward them because they were my gateway out of there. And it, it's a strange thing, right? It's a strange thing because if you have, if you have a spinal cord injury, the only way that you become whole is by walking again. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, the typical definition of whole, I didn't, I didn't know any better. I really right. didn't know any better because it's not like, it's not like I have any education on this stuff. Right. I don't know anything. So, so I, I went and, and said, okay, I'm going to walk out of here. You know, this is, this is it. I will, I will walk eventually. I had to go back to school because that was getting out of the hospital. But then I actually went to a holistic healing center 
that summer, a place called Shake Leg in, in Newport, Rhode Island. And, and it was interesting because having gone through the holistic part of it, we like the definition of holistic is really where you're dealing with, you know, the mental and emotional, as opposed to just the physical dealing with the whole person. Mm-hmm. But I feel like for us, there's probably a little bit more of a different de- definition. You know, it's almost like, to me, holistic is, is really is really personal. It's, yeah. it's, it's, it's me dealing with who I am and having all this help from a lot of other people around there, which seems like it was similar to your journey in like, nobody has the answer for me, but right. how can I help guide this journey so that I can be whole? You know what it is? It's, and you're, you're right. It is really personal. It feels so like, it's such a good way of putting it. It's almost like rebuilding yourself from the inside out. So what is the, what's the kernel that somehow, you know, you're in this craziness of dealing, you know, I'm in a, I'm in a wheelchair. I've got other issues. How are people reacting? How am I going to get up the Middlebury Hill? Like whatever. And it's like, what grounds you enough to take a breath and restart? And for me, I had this incredible moment of going to a yoga class um, in my first few months and I was all tingly. I was so determined to keep moving, even if like I could only do a little bit every day because MS stops you from moving. And I went into the yoga class and I was laying on the mat before it started and I was crying. And um, this teacher came over and he said, um, what's going on? I said, I was diagnosed with MS a month and a half ago or a couple months ago. And um, I, I'm tingling. I'm not sure if I'm going into an episode. And I'm just really scared. And he put his hand on my shoulder and he just said, it's okay. Like you're here. And in that yoga class, getting to kind of stare at the mirror and be like, you're here. Like right now you're here. Like you in this moment, you know, you are a warrior. Um, And literally breaking down my future into moment by moment. So when I see somebody who's debilitated, right? I have, I do have a moment of saying not today, like it could happen. And my life might be better for, for it, who knows, but in that moment of it's okay, not today, um, is very powerful for me. And, and then that, because you've settled starts to gain more. So do you have a kernel like that that happened to you? Oh, you know, I mean, it's in a lot of ways. I mean, I think, I think some of what you're talking about is, is the sense of like, of this endurance, you know, and, and, and for me in the hospital, there certainly was that, I mean, that's the realized possible of like, of like winning that moment. And it's not, it's not necessarily being successful in that moment. We're so oriented toward, toward successful. Like I'm oriented toward finish lines. Like I get right. to a finish line Hell yeah, you are. and it's like, this is it. I've made it to the finish line. Yeah. But, but this is, this is about winning the moment with myself. Right. And it's before realized possible. Don't you think? Well, it really is. I mean, well, in some ways for me, that is the realize possible is like, well, I have to win that moment in order to realize possible, right? Exactly. Is is this sense of like, okay, I want to give up. And and it might be that nobody knows that I've given up. Yeah. Other than Mm -hmm. me that I've given up in that moment. You know, it's like, it's the, the running up the steep hill and you're running and you're like, and, and you take that one moment where you're like, oh, I'm just going to back off just a little bit right now. 
and yeah. and and nobody else really knows it but you know that your objective was was to keep going at that same pace and you just kind of drop just that little bit and you're like oh no i, I know need exactly to come back. And, <laughs> and it's and it's the sense of not wanting to have to start over again to right to to rearm myself to start over and to be in that moment and i think that it ultimately becomes a problem solving situation where where everything everything that's coming at you is a problem but it but it but it really is is that that stay it, for me it's staying in the moment because it's so easy to quit and as an athlete it was easy to quit it was easy to to sort of give up to have an excuse even yeah. before you started. And, and it, it's, I, I, the analogy for me is kind of like, you're talking about very similar. It's like, it's being in it, like being yeah. in the moment, like being dirty, as opposed to kind of being above it, where That's we feel right. like we're the puppet master and we're directing and we're in charge of everything, which is one of those where you think, I am really important. You, you know, it's funny. I, I feel like um, in the sport of cycling, of which I, I know you are one too, is um, I often think about those times where you take long gradual hills, where you are down to your last gear. There's nowhere to go. And you know you have a long way ahead of you. And you know that if you stop, it's like four times worse. So in that moment, how do you frame yourself to, to not think about the fact that, in, that you're, you're going to have to do this for like another 25 minutes. And how do you stay in the moment to get up the hill? Which is, which is life in general, right? right? I mean, this idea of like being in it because we think that we're so in charge and we can direct it. And it, and it is, it's, it's gaining, like gaining a rhythm. You get in yeah. and you go, okay, I can gain a rhythm. It's funny. A few years ago, I did, my wife and I did four or five century rides. And we did one, we were doing a bunch of fundraising events. And so we'd go to them and, 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 uh, and, and we did one in Park City, Utah, where we live, which was like seven to 9,000 feet of climbing. Wow. It, it was. <laughs> owie, owie. It was really, what was, but what was really interesting, there was one mile that was the steepest paved mile in the country, I guess. And wow. it's only open for this event and for the tour of Utah. It's in a gated community and we rode through there and everybody's doing their switchbacks back and forth. And I, that doesn't work for me. Yeah. <laughs> I just got into my granny gear that you're talking about and just kind of grounded out. But what was funny from that was that there were so many of these hills that were four, five mile, just grinders, just yeah. you, you can't even begin to understand it really. You just get in and you just keep going. I recovered so much more quickly from that ride than I did from these other rides that had the small hills because I had to get into that rhythm and yeah. I didn't try to overpower it. So we learn these lessons and sometimes we forget these lessons, but we learn these lessons. And yeah. so that's kind of, you know, I feel like I keep learning those moments over and over again. And do you feel like, do, do, do you feel like, do you feel like that's part of who you are? You had that moment in the yoga class, but yeah. is it something that that you keep coming that you keep coming back to and going, oh yeah, right? I already learned that. Yeah, look, um, yes, absolutely. And I actually think in this time of COVID, it's a really, really big test for everybody because I think that 
you know, finding your own smart rhythm is what we're talking about. And that takes a lot of hard work. Um, and you know, that's where you start opening the possibility, um, of which you've done such a great job. But I do feel like, you know, it was interesting to watch when COVID, you know, in March, when the, when the country kind of shut down, everybody was brought to a halt and everybody was put in the situation of, of understanding what was important and slowing things down and being more in the moment. Um, and I also think for what it's worth in this day and age that loneliness and isolation and the effects of that have become really clear um, on a much larger scale. But I think now, as the world remains uncertain, we're all going into varsity level because finding a rhythm, you know, when the world is questionable, um, I think begs a whole new, you know, a whole new bike ride, Chris. That's a, it's a really interesting point, Kate. If finding a rhythm, we are in charge, which which can be a really scary thing, right? I mean, we think, oh, well, we need to be proactive. We need to be in charge. We need to take charge of our lives. But right. yet, if we take charge of our lives and things don't work out as we hope, yeah, then we're responsible for things. Whereas if we don't take charge, we're effectively we're effectively a victim of circumstances. And you talk about COVID, and we're we're recording this in the middle of July. Yeah. I'm not sure when we are going to publish it, but yeah. I think that COVID is going to be newsworthy for a while, unfortunately. But but how do you? How are, how are you able to, to look at both of those things of, of wanting to be pro- proactive, of wanting to create your rhythm, but yet assuming that responsibility and letting go of what sounds like a really crazy comfort, but the comfort of potentially, potentially being a victim of these things that are happening? It's, you know, I do think one of the greatest lessons that I actually say to people, especially when they're newly diagnosed and kind of recalibrating. Um, Somebody once said to me, like, you know, recognize that you're grieving your old self and honor that. So if, um, you know, if you have moments of being upset or whatever, it's okay. But also being gentle on yourself, right? And, And I think that, like that directive, actually, although it sounds kind of passive, is enormously helpful and empowering. Because you're empowered in the moment because I don't know about you, but I am really good at the the self-talk. Like the bad self-talk or the good self-talk? Oh, there's there's time where it's, where it's not super helpful. Like, you know, really, why did you do that, dumbass? You know, like, why yeah. would you possibly do that? You know, yeah. and, and it's the stuff that you'd never say to anybody else. Yeah. But seems easy enough to say to yourself, but but switching switching that self-talk to a point where it's like where where you're you know it's like if you're coaching somebody and you're coaching somebody through a difficult time you want to continue to build them right you want to continue to build their confidence to their their sense of self-worth and why don't we do that for ourselves right is a lot of what you're talking about right it's really amazing how uh, how hard one can be on oneself and that's where on some level, the easiest way to become aware of that is having a network of people who um, understand or want to understand and want to be there for you, um, who can kind of show a mirror to you. And I, I do think that that is one way of kind of coming to terms with that. But, you know, I, I, you know when you are, I mean, I, again, you had a physical, a massive physical setback, and I had a, you know, disease diagnosis. And in those moments when you're, you know, getting back in the game, when you're, 
you know, wheeling outside for the first time, when you're like stepping on a treadmill for the first time, and you think you're at ground zero, um, it's actually very exciting to watch yourself expand, you know, from a point of view where you thought you weren't going to be able to do anything. It, it is amazing, isn't it? When you do that one thing and you think, oh, wow, like that was you're cool. Like I did, right. But, you know, the first time I got on a treadmill, I think I like, you know, jogged two miles in a very gentle way. And wow, was I proud of myself because I thought that I was going to do zero. Right, exactly. Versus the the flip side of that, where where you you know prior to your diagnosis, you go out and you're riding five forty miles in the park, and you're you're not meeting your time. You know, you're like, oh well, exactly. I should be doing seventeen yeah, sure. eighteen minute laps. Like, why am I not doing seventeen eighteen minute laps around the park? And, right. and this is this is a bad day. And you're starting off your day going, oh well, that's a bad day. And then and then we're beating ourselves up and expecting ourselves to be productive. Yeah. after beating ourselves up. Right. And, you know, I mean, I have dropped should from my vernacular completely. I don't let my family use it. Um, you know, I'd encourage you to is a nice way of putting it. But it's a dangerous word. And it happens to, to all of us. It is. And, and I think that that it happens in the critical in the critical sense, right? In the critical where where it's life or death. And the life or death is like, I can't afford to be bad to myself right now. Because right. I need to continue to get better. I need, I need to build this block, whatever the block is. You talk about two miles running on the treadmill. Whatever that block is, I've got to build it as well as I can, as strong as I can, so that it can support the next one. And it can support right. the next one. And in some ways, it's like this little tiny little tile mosaic kind of thing to completely right. mix all my metaphors here. But, but it's like this it's like this tiny little stuff that you're building and you know yeah. each block is just like a tiny little block but eventually you're getting somewhere i keep uh you know going back to in some ways the and and it's certainly appropriate with COVID as well the that parable about the uh oh, I, i'm gonna get it wrong about i think it's vishnu uh playing playing uh, chess with a uh, with, with, a, with, I believe it was a king and, and he ends up, he ends up winning and, and, and Vishnu is, 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 is disguised as a beggar or whatever and ends up playing chess and wins. And the king says, you know, I'll give you, I'll give you whatever you want. And, and he said, well, I'm just, a, I'm just a humble man. Uh, what I'd like is I'd like one grain of rice for the first square on the chessboard and then to double it, you know, so from one to two to, to four and, and the thing is, by the time it gets to like 13, it is a, if you go all the way to 64 squares, it covers all of India, like, like six meters deep kind wow. of thing. And, and it is that sense of like, you know, something small can lead to something really big. And that's right. But, but it is allowing us ourselves to have that something small. And if you do that, it actually in some weird way, becomes fun. It does. And, and enjoying things and enjoying life seems like a relatively good way to approach it. We, you've, we've, we've talked a bit about the sense of loneliness and we've been around it, but what, what brought you to addressing loneliness as, as really as a crusade in some ways? I am. Um, I, I feel like that those few days that I was able to describe earlier in this podcast were so profound for me in terms of 
you know, being surrounded by a lot of opportunity, but still feeling terribly, um, you know, alone and by myself and that deep sense of fear. I just never forgot what that felt like. And what's been interesting is, you know, in, in the past, I would say seven years, I've really had my eye on the whole world of loneliness. And, you know, in 2017, the Surgeon General actually um, deemed loneliness the greatest epidemic of our time, um, bigger than cancer, bigger than diabetes. You know, they equate uh, feelings of loneliness being the equivalent of smoking 15 cigarettes a day, having negative biological effects. And um, there's a wonderful little um, news piece that I saw a couple years ago on NPR that I think was really powerful. And it was done by a correspondent named Barbara Bradley Haggerty. And she went down to the University of Virginia where they were studying friendship in the brain. And she brought her best friend, Cherie. They put her in a scanner and they showed her a series of green check marks and red X's. So when she saw a green check mark while she was in the MRI or whatever it was, nothing happened. But when she saw a red X, one out of five times um, that she saw it, she would receive a shock. So if you know anything about Pavlov, you would know that every time she saw a red X in the scanner, her brain would light up. Um, the areas of fear and danger would light up like a Christmas tree, except when she was holding the hand of her best friend, Cherie. And then the wow. brain would stay quiet. Really? So what, yeah. So what is the power of that, right? How do you make people, whether it's virtual or physical, feel like their hand is held? Because how does it make them feel better in the moment? And ultimately, it's a matter of um, not if, but when, you know, ultimately, we are going to prove the power of peer-to-peer -peer support and eliminating loneliness, number one, and those feelings. And number two, making people feel better. And ultimately, number three, becoming better. And um, so I just have always been aware of it. And as a result of kind of launching a community and watching people connect in their most vulnerable um, moment of time and watching them support each other, um, it became clear. I mean, for every time that somebody who used my counterpane and was part of our community posted about themselves, they would um, comment four times more than they posted. So they were spending a lot of time helping others. And what is the power of that? And I know, Chris, you and me have met so many people who have all had a response to whatever their adversity was to want to go out in the world and try to make it better for others. And I think that's all intertwined. Wow. Which is, which is just so cool. It's as you were first saying that I was, I was brought back to, to Africa when we were in, when we were in Africa, we had a liaison who was a, a, an Australian uh, Kiwi woman who is, who is a missionary there and has worked with a bunch of the hospitals. And she was just, I mean, it was just, she's a, this woman, Sarah Wallace, uh, I can never get her, her married name. Right. But, uh, but just, just hysterical just because she was fluent in Swahili and but she had that like Australian sort of uh, sort of needle that she would just give people a hard time and she was this red-haired white-skinned woman who would go and, and talk to these people and they're like who who are you this picture doesn't meet the sound at all like all I right. understand what you're saying and and she was talking to she was just phenomenal in in making sense of the world around us there yeah and she said that the Maasai who are a nomadic people 
and you look at it and go, what a difficult existence just to be going from place to place. You don't have your, you don't have a permanent home. You don't have that sense of security. And she said that there's almost no incidence of suicide in the Maasai society because they're never alone. Right. You know, um, I've been doing some uh, work in the healthcare space, and I had an, an opportunity to interview a child psychologist um, from out of Boston. And we were talking about social media and whether social media was bad for you or good for you. And he said, the issue with social media is it can be good for you. He said, the problem is, is that there are times, especially with teenagers, where something on social media has um, warranted a feeling of shame. And when you and I were growing up and we had a moment where someone hurt our feelings or someone did something that was really mean, we were often surrounded by people that would say, oh, don't worry about it or it's going to be okay. And he said the, the issue is teenagers are having those shamed moments late at night under their covers by themselves. And there's no ability for someone in the immediate moment to give perspective on you know, um, that it's going to be okay, or let me put it in perspective or to crack a joke. I mean, how many times growing up did your feelings get hurt where you were crying and one of your friends said something to you and you laughed through your tears? Right. right? So I, go ahead. I just feel well, like that, that tribe is, they're always together. They know each other well. Well, it's, it's, they do. And, and it's interesting that you talk about shame. I read a book about shame. It was like, so you've been shamed. And it was talking about, exactly that on social media where where something where you put something out and and not without without the intention and and it blows up and you've been shamed and your and your life is changed as a result and and it's exactly opposite of what you were talking about in terms of this connection with your best friend because if you're shamed you're completely ostracized and it is it is worse in a lot of ways than than the feeling of death, you know, than than dying is that that being shamed, being that bad, and so so those those two things on the opposite, you know, being diametrically opposed are are such a such a challenge, and and it's so it can be so easy. And throw one more thing in there, which I did see uh, Monica Lewinsky get interviewed. Um, at, an, at the Nantucket Project at an event once. And she said, you know, the thing about what ended up happening with me is that there were no limitations. It was endless in all dimensions. There was no way to close it off and siphon it. It just have go, it keeps going and going and going. And that's a relevant point too. It, it does. And there's nowhere to hide. Right? right. I mean, it's almost like when we were kids, you could you could go to your house and you could hide or whatever, or you could go, you could be with your friends or whatever it was, but but you could hide in this. There, there's no, and you don't know. You don't know yeah. how it's multiplying. Right. While right. you're not watching. Uh, I mean, just just. I also think like, that in the in the world of you know MS specifically too, you know, allowing people to be vulnerable and share you know, their, their biggest fears online with, with uh, getting away from the, you know, your bright and shiny bullshit, which I think does happen on, you know, the Instagrams and the Facebooks of really being honest. There are communities out there that do allow you to share that things aren't going well or that you're deeply scared. And, and the power, if you can create a safe environment for people to really talk about their experience that way, um, 
and have people around who have wonderful intentions to make you feel better is incredible. And it's possible. And it happens on a few levels too, right? I mean, because part of it is you have the supportive group. And the other part is that sometimes when you say something out loud, it's not nearly as powerful as it is rattling around in your mind. Right. Yep. It's true. You asked me a while ago in, in our, in our rambling discussion here, uh, what, what was the most difficult part after, after my, after my accident. And the most difficult part for me really was, I was saying that it was action was the easy part. It was not knowing how other people could see me and specifically the opposite sex. You know, it's one of those, you're like, okay, am I ever going to, am I ever going to get a date again? Uh, you know, right. Like you'd be perceived as less of a person entirely, entirely. And, and it's kind of almost like, and, and it sounds like you were much more proactive in terms of second date going, look, this is what's going on. Do you know what this is? And, and I wasn't, I wasn't armed nearly as well as you were in, in that thinking, okay, well, it's kind of like you have to fall in love before you can have a first date. Yeah. <laughs> you're like, here, this is who I am. This is it. This is now, you know, everything as opposed to sort of that, that dating arc where you learn a little bit here and you learn a little bit there, you know, you're on your best behavior to start off with. And then you learn a little, a few other things and stuff like that. And, and that yeah. was the biggest challenge. And I felt like if I could be in some ways, if I could be bigger than life, yeah. then I could be okay. And, and that's where I was, that was, that was my battle was, okay, I can go out and I can win this and I can win that. And it's almost like I can, I can escape the, the, uh, the orbit of this world that I'm in. Well, you can be an, ex you can be an exception to the rule, right? There are people in wheelchairs and then there are people in wheelchairs, right? It, it really is. And it's, it's an interesting, it's an interesting sense of, of this sense of inclusion. I mean, we're talking about inclusion so much. In, in our world right now too, is like, do you continue to be who you are or do you sort of, do you sort of morph who you are in order to fit in? I was reading a book, uh, a, a book about, uh, uh, Howard Bryant wrote this book and it's called uh, Full Dissidence. And it was about his, his introduction said that every, every black athlete is a dissident. Hmm. And one of the points that he made in it was that if you if you if you have like in a boardroom, if you have an African American person in the boardroom, have you changed the color or have you changed the narrative? Mm, wow. And I think that there's a you know there's sort of an interesting thought for all of us too that that it's kind of like how do we how do we fit into our world and how do we how does our world accept us as well? Well, uh, there is one distinction that I just want to finish with on this part is. You know, the the thing that gave me the advantage, because we are on the same time frame, is that I, I could go up to that person and I could say, you know what MS is? And then the next line would be, well, it's a crapshoot. I'll either go this way, like things won't well, work well, or this way, where what you were dealing with was a very evident truth that probably wasn't going to change. You know what I mean? It's it's an interesting it's an interesting thought, right? Because the thing is, for you, in some ways, you're a lottery ticket. You know, it's kind of like right. it could go this That's way, right. it could go that way, and That's and right. for me, it's kind of like it, it's not going to get any worse. Right. This but, is it. But, but this is here. this is what it is. Right. Right. And you can see it, and everybody else can see it, right? 
I mean, the, the feeling of how people were perceiving you, I'm sure on a daily basis, you deal with, with people making judgments about you without even knowing you. I most assuredly do. And, and you know what? I most assuredly make judgments about other people without knowing them. You know, this is, this is part of the human thing. And I think that that's some of what I saw in your film was, was trying to, trying to get beyond the diagnosis yeah. to see the individual, to see the character, to go, right. Oh, I like that person. You know, and yeah. it's like, Oh, I like that person. It, and MS has nothing to do with it. It's not like, Oh, I like you because you have MS. I mean, that's like a, a weird thing to say, right? I like <laughs> you because you're in a wheelchair. Like, Right. Oh, okay. All right. I don't know what yeah, to make right. of that. <laughs> it's like, but, right. but I think that's kind of the, the interesting part. So for you as a total kick-ass 34 year old, mm-hmm. you felt, you felt lonely prior to, to the, to the diagnosis as a result of, of not necessarily having a partner. How did the, how did the partner part? Cause I know that there is a partner part of it now. Because yes. I'm, I'm on the inside, but yes. how, how did that how did that happen? And was there was there a, a a personal journey to get to the point where you actually could have a partner as well? Um, so you know, in my 30s, I just felt like I was meeting a lot of people, and I wasn't. I felt like I wasn't finding the right person. And um, you know, interestingly enough, when I was the day I was diagnosed, I was going out on um, a third date with someone um, that I thought I really liked. And we were supposed to go out that night. And I called him from the hospital and I said, um, I can't meet out with you tonight. I just got diagnosed with MS. And, um, <laughs> <laughs> and maybe that was a little too honest um, because I never saw him again. But at the same time, you know, I think that there's enormous power in throwing out the truth. So I recognize it was such a big part of my life that I ha- it, was, it was taking a lot of my brain space. And so I had to be honest about it. And, um, you know, I had a range of opinions um, from people I went out with. Most of them didn't care. Um, you know, one person actually did say, I think you're sexier because of your MS, which may have been a little weird. We didn't get married. Um, Did you have the follow-up there? Like, why do I do I appear sexier because of my MS? He just was impressed that I could own it so matter-of-factly, right? Which makes sense. That's really cool. Yeah, the power of being like it is what it is. And you've got that too. Um, and so ultimately, the guy that I ended up meeting, Tyler, um, he had had a family member um, who had dealt with a neurological condition that was kind of similar to MS called ataxia. And he had um, seen firsthand kind of um, a worst case scenario or a tough case scenario. And um, we were totally honest on, on day two and he just made a conscious decision. It didn't factor into what he wanted. So, you know, I am, I am forever grateful that, um, that he took that chance. And it's funny because We've actually developed a way of communicating about my MS um, because there are times where I don't feel 100%. And we've put the MS in a number system. So I'll say to him, because I don't want to over talk about it because then I'll fester. So I'll say I'm having an MS moment. And he'll say, what's the number? And we go from one to 10. And four or five, he doesn't really say anything. If I say eight or nine, the dude goes into like Mach 10, you know, like cancels plans 
right. to make sure you know everything's taken care of or whatever else. So it's really nice to have that. And um, you know, we've been really lucky. And I do believe that you know, if or when um, my MS takes a different turn, you know, he will cross that bridge when he gets to it and do the best he can to be supportive. Okay, so I did some research on you. Yes. And 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 you mentioned that you didn't put the camera on yourself after the phone call. But yes. I did see a photo of the two of you in Central Park on a blanket. Now did you have the did you have the photo when he when he proposed to you in Central Park? Well, my husband happens to be so thoughtful and he recognized that I'm such a huge fan of documentation that he ended up hiring a paparazzi style photographer to shoot the entire proposal. So we ended up going out to Central Park. He claimed we were meeting friends that I didn't know. And when we got to Central Park, he called the photographer who had been waiting in the park for two hours. And they were able to connect under the guise that he was telling some friends where we were. And she shot the whole thing, a thousand photos, um, without me even realizing it. So I got a real appreciation of celebrities because I didn't have a clue I was being followed or, or pictures. And two months after we got engaged, he just dropped the DVD on my desk without saying a word. And I popped it in <laughs> and was like, holy shit. And, uh, and it was pretty awesome. Was the DVD the way that you had remembered it too? Um, yeah. Did it match what you had in your mind? Yes. It was just so cool to see it from a different angle and professionally shot. I'll send you the video we made of it. Um, which I think you'll appreciate. It was a really loving, wonderful thing to do. That is absolutely hysterical. I, I, yeah. I was totally fishing in that yeah. question. You know, I figured that afterwards you'd gone back and you said, okay, well, we can, you know, this is part of the story. It's written into the story. We can have it. No, it was actually done beforehand. So this is somebody who really knew you. I mean, yeah. obviously you're getting married, so hopefully he knows you, but well, it had only been um, five months since our first date that he popped the question. So arguably, we really didn't know each other. It took me like a year to realize the guy had studied at Oxford. He was like, I was like, you went to Oxford? And he's like, yeah. I mean, it's funny when things move fast. But it was very clear. Um, I ended up getting married when I was 37 years old. And it was very simple. And I'm super psyched that um, I waited it out to recalibrate and kind of reset who I was. And, uh, you know, that's a risky, that's a risk to, to shoot high and hope you find the right guy, especially if you want a family. Um, but I'm really lucky to say it worked out. And it's wonderful to be that person who gets the phone call from the newly diagnosed 35 year old who thinks their life is over. Because certainly if there's any part of the story that they like to hear, it's the fact that I found the prince. Well, which is so great as well. And when you think from 34 to 37, things could have gone south for you so quickly that, you know, some of the instinct is let's get married now because, because at least now, like I'm, I'm, I'm bringing something to the table that that's, you know, I mean, not to, not to be pejorative or anything, but, but that's worthwhile, right. You know, that you look at it in your own mind, like this is the, this is the stuff that's going in your own mind and not to, not to put anybody down by any means, but it's, but it's, these are the things that we think like, I better, like I look as good now as I'm ever going to look, which is, you know, also part of being 34 as well, right. right? It's like, yes. well, I should get married now because it's only going to get worse you know, as I MS or not. 
And before I met my husband, I was dating somebody for about six months who was a wonderful person, unbelievably accomplished and, you know, had all of his ducks in a row, but I felt like um, instinctively it just wasn't the right person. And when I told my mother we broke up, she hung up on me. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, because I think she had that same mindset. Get like, something, get something good enough. You're not going to have another chance at this. Yeah. And, and, and did you, did you one believe that you were going to have, that you would have more chances and, and did you anticipate the proposal? Did you have any idea that that was happening? I was doing the work when I met my husband on accepting the fact I might not meet the right guy and what would my life look like? And what I concluded was it was actually going to be really interesting and really awesome. And that's, you know, what they say, the moment you stop thinking about it, um, it happened. And by day three, um, we both were like, oh my God. And it, you know, we got in, he moved in after three months, engaged after five months, walking down the aisle at nine months and pregnant the day after on purpose. Wow. So I actually came home from the honeymoon and called my amazing twin brother and said, now I'm a little freaked out. I might've moved a little fast. And he said, don't worry, Kate, you got 10 months to get used to the fact that like you're having a baby. It's all going to work out. And, uh, and he was right. Wow. That is, uh, that is absolutely incredible. But, but it is in some ways that pheromone too, right. Of, of like, okay, I, I I'm not desperate. I'm not right. I, I am who I am and I know who I am, which is, which is ultimately how, you know, how, how we, how we get together, which is, I would imagine part of what you're, part of when that 35 year old calls you and says, Hey, my life is over. Yeah. That it's the message that you're able to, to pass on. Yeah. I'm so look, it's really, and I'm sure you can relate too, because I know you married later. Um, it's really hard to believe that there's enough time to do what you want and to get what you want. It's really hard. Um, so, but I feel like, you know, as a 35 year old, there is time. There is time. It's just making an effort. You know what I mean? Um, and I was certainly proactive in my journey and, you know, I'm sure you were too. What, what is next? I know that the, the film is coming out. It's going to get a wider distribution. How will the film be distributed? Uh, so it's beneath the surface. Yep. Beneath, and right now it is on a website. The Nantucket Project has put it out on beneaththesurfacefilm.com. Novartis is talking about how they want to distribute. And I think that pre-COVID, there were a lot of ideas of kind of going across the country in town halls. I mean, one other thing besides being a, a great portrayal of 10 individual people living with MS, along with uh, some caregivers and a doctor, some doctors, um, you know, is the, the message of it is all about the power of connection. Um, so I think this idea of kind of really trying to physically connect people was something that we were really excited about. And we're just going to have to see how that plays out. So, um, but I, I want to believe that, you know, Novartis has channels all over the world of putting it out there. And to their credit, this was a film project that they did not want to feel like a quote Novartis film. And so they were, um, you know, the film is unbranded and to their credit that they did not have any editorial control on the project or, or they didn't put any editorial changes they accepted the fact that there was a vision and they, I just give them huge credit for like rolling with it um, just to kind of show this. And, 
you know, I think it's a timely uh, message, A, because people needing to connect, but also really talking about the healing power of being proactive and finding people um, to make yourself feel better. And I think that the science in terms of, you know, whether it be the, the thing I told you about the scan and the best friend or they're beginning to kind of really start seeing the power of this type of thing scientifically. So I think um, the timing of this film project is pretty good. What are your, what are your hopes for it? So, you know, I really hope it spurs people to find a community. I would love to create some sort of community or be part of a community that really allows people to take ownership of their own healing with MS. Um, although um, my Counterpain is a wonderful platform um, that would be incredible for that, um, we've decided to um, keep it on ice just because, um, you know, trying to make that into a business when it had such a huge mission was a real struggle. And ultimately, you know, really thinking about how, you know, you, I think over time when you do a venture, um, and you try something, you become hyper aware of what you're good at and what you're not good at. And I feel like um, uh, having a tech platform tied to my ankle um, is not quite as agile, uh, agile as kind of just trying to be out in the world advocating for people to find their own connections. So I hope to continue talking to people living with MS and interacting and connecting them to each other for a long time. I mean it very seriously that I think that, you know, especially running a startup enterprise and being a freelancer and a, my own um, CEO, that I've never been more tired and stressed. Oh, and I have two kids too, but and an amazing husband and a dog. But all of that, um, you know, I, arguably I've never been more tired and stressed, but my MS remains stable. And I, I feel like all those characters in the film and the people I know are my force field and they keep me healthy. So I'm totally incentivized to keep doing the work, unsure exactly what it looks like at this moment, but I'm excited to kind of roll into this chapter of life where people recognize isolation and loneliness is serious because I do think more solutions will be put out um, to help people with MS and beyond. And, and not, just a, not just an MS story in a lot of ways, it's a universal story too. And, and how about for, uh, for Kate Milliken? What is next for, there's always something, right? Or, or, or multiple things going on. What about you? What, what's the next project? Are, are we allowed to know? Um, so there's actually some stuff in the works um, and the answer is no. I say that with a lot of love. Um, <laughs> but look, I'll take it that I way. Think it's all, okay, I think it's all in this space of advocacy and also, you know, helping people tell their stories. Um, I spent the past year and a half actually working for an organization called HIMSS, which is a governing body of all healthcare IT. And we did a lot of content around what's happening in healthcare today. And the combination of kind of humanity and technology and convention, it's all being thrown on its head now. So, you know, one example is that hospital systems in the country, you know, 5% use telehealth and nobody really wanted to change and now 95% are. So I think there's a, a bigger shift on the healthcare space of, um, of really recognizing um, how things are changing, you know, as compared to they are. And there's a lot of content, I think that needs to be built around that. 
I think that sounds great. I mean, obviously anybody who gets the opportunity to work with you to, to be part of anything that you're doing is a very lucky person. So we look Thank forward you. to seeing what happens next and how we might be involved. And we'll certainly put show notes out there so that people can, can follow you and figure out how to, how to, how to be a part of, of an amazing movement, which, which really is started in MS, but, but is also, human and, yes. and that's the beauty of what you're doing thank you chris it's always such a pleasure to commingle with you and um you know let's keep talking for sure and i really appreciate all this time it's always a pleasure and thank you kate Woo! see you later